Sure hope I don't say anything regrettable on this stage. <laughs> Uh-oh, Connor's on the laugh factory. Hey, do a little stand-up for us. <laughs> Airports, what is up with them? Uh, take my wife, for instance. Please, <laughs> take her. I fucking hate this bitch. <laughs> She's like, I wow. hate my wife. I hate my wife! Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers. Today uh, is Secret Movie Club Podcast 125. We are talking about Richard Pryor, specifically his stand-up comedy movie, Live on the Sunset Strip from 1982. One of his last stand-up comedy films. I think there was only one or two after that, though we would continue to make movies for a decade. And then we're also talking about stand-up comedians who go into film. And that might sound like a very niche topic, but actually it's sort of fascinating to talk about. Everybody from Robin Williams would be obviously one of the biggest examples of this to all of the cast members from SNL who have built film careers. Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, Will Ferrell, Chris Farley, Adam Sandler, just to name a few, Kate McKinnon, Leslie Jones, A.D. Bryant, man, you can keep going, Jason Sudeikis, Bill Hader, and uh, many, many more. But then there's also the stand-up comedians who went behind the camera. Obviously, there's some falls from grace there, most notably Woody Allen. But Woody Allen, for a time, was considered one of America's greatest uh, writer-directors. And he got his start in uh, stand-up comedy. Even Jon Stewart now has made several movies. Steve Carell has gone on to do tons of cinema. Uh, anyway, blah, 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 blah. Who is with us? Oh, hey, it's Daniel. Hey, it's me, Carnal Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion. And uh, Edwin's not actually here. My sound system is being weird today, so I would have played one of my many clips I have of Edwin, but unfortunately... It's been weird. Today, we'll just say that Edwin is listening attentively, taking notes. Edwin's turned a, a corner, and he wants to be a respectful podcast member. I'm Craig. I'm the founder programmer of Secret Movie Club. Welcome. We're, we're really grateful to have you here. This week, when you hear this podcast, we're a few weeks out from Thanksgiving. Happy almost Thanksgiving. We're in the full holiday season. And actually, as Daniel pointed out now, the full new release season for the fall. Uh, Daniel in the previous was talking about Tar, which I really want to see. The two movies I have to see, I think, are Tar and actually The Fablemans. I have to see The Fablemans. So. Oh my gosh, that trailer warms a piece of my heart. I cannot wait. I was going to say, I, I actually teared up at the trailer. I'm glad you said that. I, I love movie trailers and it's so funny because The Fablemans as a concept looks like it is built to win an award, but it also <laughs> looks like the best movie and I'm so okay with it. Uh, when you hear this podcast tonight, we are doing another John Ford night, Upstream and My Darling Clementine. If you've never seen Upstream, it's only an hour. And this was the movie that John Ford made after he saw F.W. Murnau's Sunrise. Hugely important if you're a John Ford fan because John Ford took German expressionism uh, wove it into his style, made it uniquely idiosyncratically his and American. You know, and weirdly, John Ford makes an appearance in Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans, as played by David Lynch. W what John Ford did has reverberated through cinema ever since he saw F.W. Murnau's Sunrise. So we're showing upstream, and then we're showing uh, one of his bangers, one of John Ford's all-timers, uh, My Darling Clementine, his version of the shootout at the OK Corral, Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday. It's as close you get to a Western noir amazing one of henry fonda's greatest roles everybody rips off that movie and then uh, we enter our weekend which is kind of a weird thing here by the time you hear this it'll probably be sold out but we have partnered with with uh, these folks who and i'm very grateful to them they got one of the premier poster designers in the world 
to design three posters for Secret Movie Club, and we're showing the movie and then giving out the poster. If you buy a ticket, you're going to be like, this ticket is $190. I'm going to go and punch Craig in the face. You need to know that the reason for that is because the partners insisted that if you attended the movie, you buy the poster. And all I can tell you is if you do buy the poster, it almost certainly immediately will be worth $150 to $200. It's a limited edition. Only 100 will ever be made. They are numbered. They're all done. The three movies all done by the same designer. And uh, those movies are Boogie Nights, Eyes Wide Shut. That's what we're doing on Saturday. And then on Sunday, The Shawshank Redemption. So uh, I'm still not at liberty to say who the designer is because my our partners here have asked us not to. But all I can say is think about the five top designers of alt movie posters. And you probably have guessed who the designer is. We got Drew Struzan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you may have to cut this, but I'm a pretty big posterman myself. And the sleuths on Reddit figured it out a while back. And as soon as that happened, I saw the tickets like. <laughs> and then next Tuesday, November 15th, Edwin's birthday night. Edwin has programmed Godzilla 85 and Godzilla 2000 or Godzilla Millennium on 35. Edwin will be there. He is the programmer that night. He will speak. I'm almost sure he will he will insist that I say nothing or just praise him and hand the mic to him. Uh, and then Wednesday, we kick off our Passport to Noir series. Uh, we are doing Edward Yang's A Brighter Summer Day, one of the great Taiwanese movies. If you've never seen this film, one, just know it's almost five hours long. Two, know that that flies by. And three, it is an epic experience. And it all revolves around a murder that really happened in Taiwan around these rock and roll concerts and gangs in the late 50s. Uh, it's incredible. Thursday, we are doing a double, again, Passport to Noir. Lino Braca, probably the Philippines' premier, most famous director. And we're probably showing his most famous film, Manila and the Claws of Light. And then we're doing Tran An Hung, a director I love, a Vietnamese filmmaker. We're doing Ciclo. I always describe it as like a Vietnamese taxi driver. That's probably not completely accurate, but Tran An Hung is an incredible filmmaker. His style is very cinematic, and I, I don't think he gets enough praise, frankly, especially for his first three or four movies, which are probably the ones I'm the biggest fan of. Senate Green, Propria, The Vertical Ray of the Sun, Ciclo. As always, uh, you can write us at Community at secretmovieclub.com. Uh, you can find out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. Uh, we are getting very close to announcing our January through March 2023 uh, winter season. We are aiming to actually launch that at the very beginning of December. So get ready for that. We're going to keep to the three-month season. And also, uh, just another heads up, that December 3rd, we're most likely going to be in Palm Springs at the Camelot Theater. It's a fundraiser for Secret Movie Club. By the time that we get you hear this podcast, we'll figure it out how we're talking about it. But I will say that for many cinephiles, this is a bucket list uh, night of cinema that they would want to see. I will tell you that these are uh, three movies that many people really want to see a certain way. And that night at the Camelot Theater, you're going to see them the way you want to see them. And the Camelot is lovely. And you guys heard it here first. It's Hangover 1, 2, and 3. <laughs> On DVD. I'm going to have fun with this bit. Every time you have to say this, I get to say another funny trilogy of movies that it clearly isn't. <laughs> Very excited about that. In 1982, stand-up comedian turned uh, movie star Richard Pryor made a stand-up comedy movie, Live at the Sunset Strip, which he actually made 
after a very famous or infamous, probably is a better way to put it, incident where he was freebasing cocaine and lit himself on fire. It was a horrible incident that happened. It was all over the papers. True to Richard Pryor's form, he made that an integral part, really the capper, the closer to this stand-up. He addresses it in a really very Richard Pryor way. Richard Pryor is often considered the GOAT, the greatest of all time in terms of stand-up comedians. It's interesting now to know what the younger folks think about him, because I wonder if he is to the youngest generation what, it's weird to say it this way, but what like Alfred Hitchcock might be to cinephiles, just a filmmaker that's no longer at the tip of the youngest generation's tongues necessarily. But there was a time where you said Hitchcock and everybody knew who you were talking about. And Richard Pryor would be the same. He revolutionized stand-up comedy in the 60s and the 70s. That parlayed into a movie career. That parlayed into a TV show, which actually was short-lived because it was so controversial. And that TV show starred Robin Williams. Robin Williams, when you see Robin Williams' stand-up comedy, you can actually see that Williams' style comes very much and is heavily influenced by Richard Pryor's style. But then Richard Pryor started to do a series of movies with Gene Wilder, uh, Stir Crazy, uh, Silver Streak. He co-wrote Blazing Saddles with Mel Brooks. Richard Pryor then became a movie star and continued to every now and then go back to the source and make a stand-up comedy film. Because back in the day, there wasn't even HBO, uh, which now is a streaming service. But that was where in the 80s and 90s, stand-up comedians would get their special. That wasn't even around. So if you were going to memorialize your your set, you did it as a movie, a stand-up comedy movie. And Richard Pryor, up until Eddie Murphy's Raw in 1988, live at the Sunset Strip, it cost $4 million to make and it grossed $30 million. So it was the highest grossing stand-up comedy film for a near a decade or half a decade. And then after Live at the Sunset Strip, Pryor would continue to make movies, both with Gene Wilder and on his own, Superman 3, The Toy. Uh, he made an autobiographical movie called Jojo Dancer, Your Life is Calling that he wrote and directed and starred in. And then in the early 90s, he, or mid-90s rather, he came down with a degenerative, a neurological degenerative disease, and his last performance was in David Lynch's Lost Highway in 1997, and he was still totally with it, but just in a wheelchair, he passed uh, in the early aughts, uh, but he wrote, even in that time, he wrote a memoir, prior convictions, and a number of things. Well, what I was going to say is he, it's actually Live at the Sunset Strip is still the third highest grossing stand-up film raw is number one what's number two uh the original kings of comedy richard pryor has another in the top 10 uh here and now the rest of the top 10 consists of martin lawrence kevin hart and something called divine madness bet midler bet midler has a stand wow why did i not know that that rules but yeah i had never really seen i'd seen Pryor's like some of his movie stuff i never really seen his stand-up stuff i think there was definitely some like context <laughs> that i felt like i was missing especially with like the accident i had to like look it up like halfway through to like be like okay what does he keep talking about <laughs> there's also he does like a character at one point mudbone seems to be a beloved character oh yeah mudbone yeah prior is fascinating his bio is crazy he was born and lived in a brothel 
His mother was a prostitute. His grandmother ran the brothel and his father was a pimp who also had gambling houses and other things in Indiana, in Illinois, rather. Sorry. He went into the military. He stabbed a guy. He uh, was dishonorably discharged. Then he got into stand-up comedy. Uh, but his original act was very, this is even problematic to say, but I hope people understand what I'm trying to say. It was very Bill Cosby, by which I mean before Bill Cosby's fall from grace and this horrific rape scandal, Bill Cosby was known as a wholesome stand-up comedian who would just do stories about his family and his wife and his brother. And Bill Cosby influenced everybody because Bill Cosby freed stand-up comedy from the one-liners to where you could tell a story. And there were just little jokes that kind of hit. He Pryor comes in and he's what was known as kind of like a middle brow, clean comedian. And then he was in playing Vegas. And one night he came out in the early 70s or late 60s, looked at the audience and he said, what the F am I doing here on this stage doing this act? And that was like an epiphany moment for him. And suddenly his act totally changed. He started to swear. He started to talk about race issues. He tried to talk about class issues. He talked the way that people talked and a vernacular that they talked. He kind of picked up where Lenny Bruce left off. And then he did a number of stand-up comedy albums in the 70s that went gold, went platinum. And one of the characters he created was this character named Mudbone. And Mudbone, I mean, you should look it up. I'm not really... The guy, I'm not qualified to really contextualize Mudbone, but my understanding about Mudbone was he was doing the kind of guy, like an older black guy you would know in the black community, who would sit on his porch and would have a story about everything and would somehow, like, no matter what you said, if you talked about dinosaurs, this guy would talk about, like, his family in the dinosaur times. And it was just like somehow this guy had a story about he was everywhere, always, all at once, could always give you advice, and was at every historically important moment moment in the history of the world. And that was Mudbone. And everybody loved Mudbone. And Richard Pryor kept trying to like, I don't want to do Mudbone again. I don't want to do another thing about Mudbone. And that's what that anyway, blah, blah, blah. So it was interesting because I also don't know how much like older stand up I had really seen, you know, because uh, when I was in like high school, I kind of got into stand up. I think the big ones were those two Dave Chappelle specials, Killing Them Softly and And the San Francisco one. Yeah. I tried to do it once. It's a long story, so I'm not going to say the whole thing here. I did it twice on the same night. I did it first in front of a middle aged suburban audience and I killed. And then I immediately afterwards did it in front of a young urban audience and bombed about as hard as you possibly could. I don't know. I have a weird... I don't actually have a thing against stand-up. <laughs> but I do as kind of a bit. I've met a lot more stand-ups after moving to L.A. My joke thing is I always say that I. that's why I don't like stand-up anymore. Which is, you know... Sort of true. Stand-up comedians are a special breed. It's weird. I always find it very strange when a stand-up comedian is like, yeah, my favorite movie is... Uh, I'm like, what? <laughs> Um, I'll probably cut that actually because that's like very specific to a person that I don't want to. <laughs> the thing I see from modern standup is a lot of people kind of just complaining about how they can't say anything anymore and you're like literally <laughs> on a stage in front of people doing it and it's like I don't know what you want man that's something that I've found very distancing but this it was a it was a fun special you know I think comedy doesn't quite age as well as certain types of thing like art because a lot of comedy is about surprise and when you know you know, I was watching this and I was seeing like so much of like 
what I've seen of stand-up in it. But even still, there are some bits in this that were really funny. I think especially my favorite bit in the movie is uh, the bit about the mobsters is so funny. Oh, that, yeah. I think that's probably the stand-up. Where, where um, I'll, I'll just kind of explain it because everybody loves explaining jokes, where uh, Richard Pryor talks about how when he was younger and he was like, I guess, doing uh, working at a, at a mob-controlled place, uh, he tried to stick him up. And the mobsters were just like, ah, oh, this guy, Richie, just come here. Come on. And then they just started talking about times they've murdered people and <laughs> um, clearly just didn't take prior as like any sort of threat. Yeah, it's funny you called that out because it, there's so much of the Richard Pryor self-revelatory. He's really, the reason I think a lot of people, including myself, consider him the GOAT, is he was he was so honest and truthful and he really did take his personal pain and would be honest about it on stage, about his foibles and his flaws. And in this stand-up special, it's funny that the funniest bit is actually not the most revelatory bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I do that thing, this guy, Richie, oh, Richie, you know Johnny Knuckles? Oh, look, look, Johnny Knuckles sold <laughs> his money. You know, so you know, I, my thing was an ice pick, you know, because you know, it's great. You know, you just boom, boom, boom. <laughs> like got him in a headlock. That's so good. But it is, that is an interesting point that like, I remember when I was a kid, everybody would get the VHS of Eddie Murphy's Delirious, uh, like at slumber parties when I was eight, nine and 10. And it was like, oh, they're doing Delirious. The feeling was just getting to watch this guy swear up a storm and talk about things that you were fascinated about, but that you weren't supposed to be watching or talking about. But I do wonder if you watched Eddie Murphy's Delirious now, how much of that would seem passe in the sense that people have built on Eddie Murphy's Delirious and then gone further because people talk about how in, in comedy and music, it's generational. Every 20 years, it kind of turns over and becomes something different. Well, it's funny that you say that because Delirious and uh, George Carlin were that for, I feel like, Oklahoma uh, middle school kids. Like if you got a DVD or a VHS of that, that was like the thing. They said stuff you weren't supposed to say. So it's funny that there's overlap. Generationally, I have an oh, interesting relationship with comedy. When I moved here, a lot of my first work, not I did not perform the comedy, to be clear. A lot of my work was behind the scenes in comedy venues, recording stuff, uh, be it audio or, or video things. And I have a lot of respect for comedians. It is something that makes me very uncomfortable. But in the same way, I kind of feel like musicians, but in a different way, because I think comedians are putting themselves out there. Like you, a lot of times you go to a, a concert because you love a band, but so often comedians trying to get their start are just open micing it. Yeah. And kind of like, I assume like an opening band might feel, you know, an audience has to be on your wavelength to appreciate the thing. And so I also have a weird relationship with comedy that there's a part of my brain that when, when the vibe isn't right and it's going downhill, that I feel there's like an empathetic part that's reserved for comedians and the bombing is no thank you i can't handle that it makes me like laugh louder but then i sound like a psychopath um <laughs> you mean to, to like let them know that you're there for them as like a form of support uh, yeah yeah but then I, it, it makes it a really uncomfortable experience for me so very often i'm mixed on going to like comedy shows like that i want to support because i think it's a very difficult thing to do but i also there's a part of me that's like i cannot watch i cannot be in that headspace of the fear of, of that, I guess. But I think my favorite types of comedies are reminiscent of Live on the Sunset Strip because I think this Richard Pryor is like a very broken, I don't know, he looks like he's, I don't know if in pain is the right word, but he looks like someone who is after the experiences he has had. He's like a lesser version of himself, not in terms of his 
popularity or being on it with his talent but he feels like a very a different composure i guess yeah like a humbled richard Pryor. yeah humble's a good word humble's a much better word even the way he enters in the beginning he enters like through the audience and it was like this comeback thing and i, I think i'm very much my comedy taste i really love storytelling comedy that's related to personal things and so in richard Pryor's wheelhouse this is one of my favorite things because it's him talking about his addictions and talking about these accidents. And so it's sort of these personal stories. I think I'm, I'm very often, those are my favorite types of comedians that are sort of the storytellers beyond just great jokes. They're very much about like these personal things and the way that they handle them. And so I enjoy that in this. And I like to see, I'm not super well-versed in stand-up specials. Uh, I try to watch some, I think sometimes they, they gather steam, but I know this feels like a, a pretty big work that inspired stuff. I was reading earlier that about Martin Lawrence and this must have been like Martin Lawrence's entire foundation was probably based on live at the sunset strip in terms of his delivery and like the way that he does things. And so I think the effect that it has is really interesting. There is an energy in a great room. Like if you're seeing a pretty well-known comedian, they're doing their big auditorium, their very large auditorium tours. That energy is infectious the way a good movie is. And I think that applies to any specials cut on film. But you really need that because I think watching these at home, I watch this at home by myself. It's so funny. Like you like laugh, smile to yourself, but you really need that energy. Otherwise, I don't find myself laughing the same way. Like I appreciate it, but I don't laugh. But I'll see the same thing again, surrounded by people. And suddenly that energy is contagious in a way that I think is really needed for these. Yeah, definitely. I watched it last night after getting back from the <laughs> the Halloween thing with gotten out of the shower white paint still all over me and it definitely um probably with an audience because he's he's killing in that room for me watching live at the sunset strip i'm trying to think what it would be analogous to if you're a bowie fan it would be like listening to young americans it's super solid there are some standouts but it's not necessarily the best album or it's not necessarily the best stand-up comedy and so if you like what you see in live at the sunset strip you should check out his comedy albums his other things because some of the other ones are way more crazy way more bold way more talking about things you're like whoa <laughs> but very funny and it feels like a tightrope walk i still love live at the sunset strip there's a bit he does of that about how when he gets really furious with his girlfriend or his wife he gets quieter <laughs> to the point where he's just like yelling at her but the way he does it is he's, you can tell he's swearing up a storm but he's not and there's something truthful about how men and women when they've been together for a long time how they get i think a certain kind of man and woman i really respect that he does a few things in it one of them is be real honest about who he is as a lover and a husband. And he doesn't flatter himself. I think probably one of the hardest things, and I don't know, I'm not a stand-up comedian. I've always been fascinated by it. I've actually always wanted to put together a set and do an open mic just to do it. But I'm, I'm sure I would bomb because I'm not naturally funny. Like, I think you have to be. But I've always been fascinated by the discipline of it, of trying to hold an audience's attention for 10 or 20 minutes and make them laugh and all that stuff. What I really appreciate about what he does in Live at the Sunset strip is he's genuine and that might sound obvious but a lot of comedians i see they'll seem self-effacing or self-deprecating 
but they're not really. This is something actually that's pointed out about Woody Allen, and I've thought about this over time, and I, I love Woody Allen's stand-up comedy. He has a hilarious bit about a moose at a Halloween party, actually, that people should listen to, that is actually like one of the pinnacles of his comedy. Even in his movies and in his stand-up comedy, even though it seems like the joke is on him, he's actually in a weird way elevating himself. Um, and the more you listen to it, you more you, you realize there's an, a level of reverse narcissism. There's a great quote Orson Welles has about it. I've been told about it. And although I wouldn't say it as meanly as Orson Welles did, I get what he's saying. He hates himself and he loves himself. A very tense situation. Everything he does on screen is therapeutic. Like all people with timid personalities, his arrogance is unlimited. That's kind of the gist of it. Yeah, and, and I want to be clear here, actually. I, I, there are a lot of Woody Allen movies that I'm a huge fan of that were actually really instrumental in my becoming a filmmaker. And I also want to say that, I, you know, Woody Allen, I think he, he is a great stand-up comedian, and he's made some great films. And I, I wrestle daily, not daily, but I, I wrestle a lot when I think about Woody Allen, about how to talk about him and how to contextualize it. Maybe we'll have to do a podcast on this kind of thing another time. We just don't have time for it now. But nevertheless... What I'm trying to say is the difference between Woody Allen and Richard Pryor is Richard Pryor to me genuinely is open about his flaws and about his shortcomings and about the things in his life that he knows he's messing up on in a genius way, at a genius level. The way he talks about his relationship with women, and he was bisexual, actually. Very famously, he supposedly had an affair with Marlon Brando. Something I would point out to people is there's a roast you can get on YouTube, the Richard Pryor roast, and he goes up at the end and admits his bisexuality in the mid-70s and just owns it. Um, and you're like, whoa, whoa. That was like live TV, and that was Richard Pryor. And so I think in Live at the Sunset Strip, at the end, it initially seems like he's not going to talk about when he lit himself on fire from the freebase and cocaine thing. Then he does, and you think he's just going to talk about it in an elliptical way. And then suddenly he tells that Jim Brown story about him being like how the pipe talks to him and how the pipe is just telling him to like stay in the room. And then Jim Brown comes and says, you're going to lose me as a friend. And then like after he lights himself on fire, what it was like in the hospital and then he ends with a joke where he lights a match and he says rich this is richard Pryor on fire <laughs> he talks about how like and you're like whoa 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 uh he just went into his trauma in front of the audience and i think that's what makes him the goat and i say this all the time whenever i encounter what i feel personally is the pinnacle of art and it reverberates with me. I actually kind of, someone once described it as a tuning fork, but I get very emotional actually. And I lean up and I start to feel a vibration in me because I feel like I'm witnessing great art and it's very inspiring to me. And I would say the last chapter of The Grapes of Wrath did this to me. Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude did this to me. Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai did this to me. Jean Renoir's Grand Illusion did this to me. Listening to certain music did this to me. And there's this Richard Pryor special in the 60s called Live and Smoking. He's still pretty young. It's in Greenwich Village. And he ends it with a 10-minute routine of a wino lecturing a junkie. The wino is middle-aged. The junkie is like 19 in the New York projects about how the junkie needs to improve his life. And the wino is just, I can't do it. I won't do it. But Richard Pryor committed to this bit for 10 minutes and no one laughs. No one laughs. And I leaned up and I was, when I heard it and I started to oscillate because this guy was addressing race. He was addressing class. He was addressing the urban situation of the projects. 
And it is funny, but you cannot believe that you're laughing at it because he's addressing a painful cross-generational truth. I don't think I've ever seen any bit of comedy in my entire life, except maybe... And it comes in second for me, Dave Chappelle's bit about going to the projects with the baby, which if anyone's seen that, (laughs) when his limo driver takes him to the projects and there's just a baby standing on the corner at 4 a.m. in the morning, you got to listen to it. I mean, it's a different kind of thing. It's Dave Chappelle's thing. It's more jokey and he's killing. The audience loves it. But Richard Pryor live and smoking this wino lecturing a junkie to me is the apotheosis of stand-up comedy. And Richard Pryor doesn't truncate it. He doesn't go to the easy jokes. He doesn't. No one laughs. Ten minutes. And I was like, holy mother of god that's cojones that's guts uh that's why i love richard Pryor. i grew up pretty heavily in snl stuff snl was pretty big in my middle school high school i hung out with a lot of theater kids it was like you know the bread and butter of monday was to talk about the funny stuff from saturday i've always had a big affinity toward the snl adjacent like movies and things so i think we've talked before like Hot Rod and Pop Star are like peak stuff in that realm. But in pure stand-up, my my favorite stand-up comedian into performance, I think, is 48 Hours. Because that was Eddie Murphy's first... It was. He was still on SNL, 82. 48 Hours, I think, is like a real a real special piece of cinema. There's a, there's a great uh, a writer I really love named Walter Chow. And he was involved in this David Fincher produced video essay series on Netflix called Voyeur, I believe it was called. And there's an episode about 48 hours. And it's a movie that I've always liked. And I've gone to as, as being one of my favorites from when conversations like this happen, because I really like that era of Eddie Murphy. But it talks about sort of what specifically Eddie Murphy brings to that, what him and Walter Hill are doing with that movie in the early 80s. And sort of using all of the things that make Eddie Murphy special as a stand-up comedian and using them both as a comedy backbone, but in a really dramatic way, uh, specifically about like a race in this regard and like the class systems and even like the relationship of cop and convict. And I believe we may have talked about this before, but comedians have like this gift of when they turn to drama, I don't know what it, I, I think maybe because comedy for me is a tool of suppression for myself, an internalization tool. And so I think comedians turning to to drama is often like, really a staggering thing or comedians turning to horror in the way that filmmakers have with Jordan Peele. And then recently, um, Zach Kreger from whitest kid, you know, with barbarian. I was going to, I was going to say, we actually did, we have an episode, episode 89. I double checked on this is talking about when comedians go serious. Yeah. So I, I didn't want to stem too far into that since it's sort of been a thing. As I said earlier, stand up is such you're opening yourself up to an audience. And if it doesn't work, it's like, it feels really personal. I would imagine when the thing's not working, but when it does, I imagine it also must feel like you're on top of the world, that you're a composer for this thing because comedy is so subjective. And so I think therefore like stand-up must be so intimidating. But the move into film with that, seeing the ways that they utilize the strengths of stand-up to give these really open performances often, I think are my favorite things that they do. Because clearly, I mean, comedians, stand-up comedians that do comedies, you get, you know, Blues Brothers, stuff like that. Clearly great stuff. Tapping in on all the things that you love them for from the stage or from their sketch stuff. But I'm very into the interesting left turns of honest, dramatic roles in that world. So I won't retread too much because there's a whole episode about it. But I think it's fascinating. And I wonder, too, if some of the comedians that haven't had... Well, I guess Eddie Murphy had sort of a pseudo comeback with uh, My Name is Dolomite. But sort of comedians who are kind of retired from stand-up or they're performing 
once a month with Laugh Factory. A return to movies that can kind of figure out how to utilize them would be really interesting, I think. Apparently they're making another Beverly Hills Cop movie. Are they really? I found out in the last couple of months. Another, I think that's another great movie. Because stand-ups, and they talk about this, they own this. They're a really interesting breed because the art form is holding an audience's attention without special effects, without a team, just you and a mic. The need to do that and then the ability to do that probably, like anything, appeals to and calls out a certain kind of personality. I think what's interesting to me is often, not always, but often I find that stand-up comedians don't necessarily make the greatest actors because acting requires a lot of listening and teamwork and collaboration. And I think sometimes there's a very famous story about Rodney Dangerfield on Caddyshack and Rodney Dangerfield, like famous comic on Carson all the time. He didn't understand how films work. Like literally they tried to explain how cut and action worked and like marks and stuff. And he'd be like, I don't have any time for this. (laughs) And so they'd be like, okay, Rodney. And they'd just like tell Rodney to go. And Rodney would just be like, Hey, and he'd like do his bed. And he'd like, and then he would just keep doing it. And then he'd be like, Okay, I'm done. And then they're like, well, I guess that's the cut. And that was the only way that they could film him because he refused actively to try to understand how movies were made, at least at the beginning. And I, I always wrestle with this, which is that I love stand-up comedians and I'm obsessed with stand-up comedy. And yet, you know, I think that stand-up comedians probably make better writers and directors. I don't know. I'm, I'm saying a lot of nonsense here. But there's a like everything, there's a lot of contradictions. Like there's no amazing Richard Pryor movie to me. And maybe some people will take me to task for that. But the most amazing Richard Pryor movie is probably Blazing Saddles, which he wrote. And it's because you can feel his writing and his voice in the actual movie. And there's some dangerous jokes in that movie that are clearly Richard Pryor and Paul Mooney. I I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I was actually going to kind of say sort of the opposite in certain ways. I kind of know what you mean. In certain ways, like a stand-up comedian, it can be less them as an actor and more as like a uh, performer being put into a movie, like a movie star more than an actor. But I do feel like that is like more of the thing you see I mean I know there's both filmmaker comedians I feel like maybe this is just like my own personal biases because uh I like this type of comedy more but I feel like sketch comedians oftentimes become really good with writing and directing Jordan Peele probably right now being the example that a lot of the people from the state and the careers they've gone on to especially um you know like Michael Showalter from the state directed The Eyes of Tammy Faye last year which was like, you know, got nominated for Best Actress. A really good movie, one of my favorite movies last year. And But even then, on the other side of like the more traditional comedies, him and David Wayne made Wet Hot American Summer, which I think is like last, when you think about like since the 2000, like the big pure comedy movies, I feel like Wet Hot American Summer is, is really held up. And over time, it just gets more and more esteem. It makes sense to me, though, that comedians steeped in sketch would be able to produce a full movie in a way because there are so many tools you have to have in sketch. How do I make everybody sort of play to their strengths? What's the concept of the scene? What's the joke of the scene? You know, you're doing visual jokes as well as verbal jokes. It seems like the toolbox of the sketch comedian might be potentially a little bigger than the toolbox in terms of translating to movie making. The best thing you can do with kind of sketch and with improv and stuff, like more like scene-based comedy, is to like play it as genuine as possible, usually. And I think with stand-up, it's people who are very much so trying to be funny 
because <laughs> that's like the whole purpose. I'm being maybe judgmental. My anti-stand-up bias is tainting my testimony once again. I'm obsessed with stand-up. You know, like I'm a huge Bill Hicks fan. Uh, my three favorite uh, stand-up comedians are Pryor, Chappelle, and Hicks. And have you ever heard any Bill Hicks stuff? A little bit, a little bit. It's been a while, though. I almost feel like you would really dig him. I think Bill Hicks was Texan, too. He has this great sensibility of it's not a coastal sensibility. Everyone talks about Hicks because a lot of times his humor would enrage the audience. He does this one bit, and I'm a parent. I find it hilarious, but I'm like, whoa, <laughs> if ever you wanted to alienate your audience, this is the bit you do, where he talks about his fury at how parents always think their kids are special. <laughs> and he's like, I don't want to be misunderstood. I know you think he's special. I'm not confused about that. I know you think he's special, but he's not. And then he goes into this whole thing about how most people have babies unplanned and that this has caused like this horrible thing. And then he, he talks about this trucker and this woman just continuing to have, and he's like, here comes the baby plunk. Here comes the baby plunk. And you're like, whoa, he goes off and the audience is not laughing because he's attacking them and their life choices. Stand up comedy is about people who are talented about talking about things that most of us can't talk about and somehow making it entertaining and humorous so that we can have a cathartic release. But these are things that we don't know how to talk about. And somehow they find a way to make a, a joke about it. Another favorite Bill Hicks routine he does that I love is this whole routine about how he went off on Christians in the South. By the way, I got to say again, I'm a practicing Christian, so people understand. But I mean, if you can't laugh at it, you can't find the hypocrisy in it. I don't know that you're really being rigorous about your, your faith. But he goes off on all the hypocrisies of Christianity. And then at the end, he like goes out into the parking lot and these three dudes approach him and they're like, hey, I didn't like what you were saying in there about Jesus and about Christians. We're Christians. We got a problem with you, buddy. You hear us? We're Christians. And Felix is like, oh, you're Christians? So forgive me. <laughs> and then they got like really confused because they wanted to beat the hell out of him. That kind of monologuing doesn't necessarily translate to great cinema, which is communal. I also grew up as a huge Robin Williams fan. And Robin Williams had a stand-up comedy special called Live at the Met, which I used to listen in the car with my dad and uh, my sister after my folks divorced. My dad would also let us listen to stand-up comedy that my mom would never let us listen to. And so we got to listen to Robin Williams in the mid-80s at his height, like just burning, like on fire stand-up comedy. So I know that album almost by heart. And I, I, I have a real association with my dad laughing at it because Robin Williams talks about having a drinking problem. And my dad was an alcoholic, had a drinking problem. My dad would laugh, but like kind of wince. <laughs> at certain things that Robin Williams would say. I remember as he was driving because it was like hit a little too close to home, I think, for my pop. Then Robin Williams goes in, and I loved Robin Williams movies. And I loved when Robin Williams would play a bad guy. I think we've talked about this, but I love One Hour Photo. Great movie, yeah. It's like a genuinely, yeah, unsettling, like Robin Williams commits to that character. And I also, you know, when Robin Williams killed himself, you know, you see certain talents. Robin Williams is one. And Robin Williams had a, you know, he got sick. He, he, had, a, he had a sickness. And, and I, from what I understand, he got really depressed that he was never going to be funny like he used to be. And that that also, that sickness was, you know, affecting the way he was thinking. So I want to be very clear. Like, I love Robin Williams. God bless Robin Williams. I have no judgment on how Robin Williams went out. Not, you know, none of us know where he was and how he was. I'm just sad he went out that way. I wish he had known 
how, you know, it's funny, I'm going to tear up. I didn't realize how much I felt for Robin Williams, but how loved he was, you know, like I wish somehow his personality could have understood that we didn't need another stand-up comedy spot. Like we love that man for everything he gave to us in American society. And he, he didn't have to be funny. You know, he had been funny way beyond a thousand lifetimes. But I, I think about how we as a culture and as an audience, we love to raise our geniuses and then we, we, we engage in a kind of enjoyment a vampiric enjoyment when they fall. I think that we're part of the problem. And I look at Jim Carrey, who seems actually to be in a pretty healthy place now, but um, Jim Carrey addressing his mental health issues. You know, Dave Chappelle has talked about Martin Lawrence and how, you know, he felt that why did Martin Lawrence end up there was because of like a lot of people around Martin Lawrence. You'd have to hear Dave Chappelle talking about that. And now, right now, as we record this, it's only a few weeks since uh, Kanye West, not a stand up comedian, uh, just, you know, in music and, and obviously well known. But Kanye West, all these people are dropping him because of these anti-Semitic remarks he was making on podcasts and stuff. And everyone knows I'm Jewish. You know, my whole dad's side of the family is Jewish. And my initial reaction was an outrage at this. Look, I hate anti-Semitism. I hate when somebody <laughs> is like it's the Jews who run the world or whatever. And like, you know, that old trope. But my initial reaction with Kanye was more like this is a guy who has mental health issues. And he's talked about having mental health issues and he's open about the fact that he's not taking his medication. And I'm not saying that you have to. I don't know how I would feel if I had to medicate myself because of mental health issues. And I didn't like the way I felt medicated. I mean, I everyone I get that. But I feel like we engage in a kind of enjoyment of Kanye West being nuts or Kanye West saying crazy things or now let's rail against Kanye West. And where I feel that the reaction should be, I wish people around him and maybe they have would be more like you've got a talent and you're a genius. Maybe if you were on meds, you would be a little more self-aware that some of these things you think are provocative are actually super hurting you and maybe don't even represent what you really believe. I mean, you know, I don't know if Kanye has voices in his head. I have a friend who has voices in his head and has a, had a crazy story about it. he stopped taking his meds and he ended up at a cavern in some state in the South because the voices told him to go there. And suddenly he's in this cavern and he like had a moment of clarity and he was like, oh no. And he called his parents and he went home and he got on his meds and it never happened again. But I just, I, I, I think we, we exploit people with mental health issues in our entertainment in a way that I wish we would re-examine the sickness of our culture in comparison with their mental health. The Kanye thing reminds what you were saying. I, I do agree with you, but it reminds me of um, one of the guys on last podcast, a thing he says a lot because he's dealt with a lot of mental health issues. He's talked about how uh, he's had bipolar disorder. At one point, he was afraid to go on the subway because he thought the metal in the subway meant everybody could read his mind. He says a saying that he says, mental health is not your fault, but it is your responsibility. I think that probably applies to Kanye, where I do agree. I do have a lot of sympathy for him, but I also like don't at the same time because there's a certain point where you get to where whether by the design of his own fate of putting yes people around himself and not having people around to challenge him or to check him or whatever, or by just by him ignoring those people that are there, he, he's gotten to this point. I think the bigger thing for me, I, I do agree with you that it's weird how people like revel in it. The weirder thing is more um, the inverse of it and seeing the way it sort of normalizes that kind of stuff. I think that's kind of scary. I would actually argue that Donald Trump 
has mental health issues. I think that people don't address that somebody with narcissistic personality disorder is being treated as if he doesn't have a mental health issue and can somehow guide a portion of the country. I think that's problematic. My nice thing I'll say about Robin Williams, I mean, it's bittersweet. The One of the things, and maybe this will come off like it's it's kind of funny, but inevitably in the next 10 or so years, they're going to make a Legend of Zelda movie. And I'm really sad that he is not here to... Uh, be able to be in that movie considering he was such a huge fan that he named his daughter after the game oh, i didn't know that yeah robin williams is a confirmed gamer confirmed zelda head i think him and his daughter did like a commercial for one of the zeldas that came out like not that long before he passed away or maybe maybe his daughter did a commercial afterwards or something but yeah zelda williams um hit me up nintendo i'll make that movie i'll dedicate it to robin i'll put zelda in there it's gonna be great but rest in peace robin williams yeah absolutely all right uh pop culture final thoughts my pop culture is the book i'm reading now an author whose name i cannot pronounce i believe it's yoon lee it's called the book of goose from this year it's about a, a, a woman whose childhood best friend passes away the woman hears the news while she's while she's overseas you sort of learn about their relationship and why why they were so close and it kind of picks up about these children and like this war ravaged chunk of the world and like the ways that they escaped it and like what their friendship meant for each other a book that'll make you feel lovely but it's really about friendship and art the book of goose it's a great book have a great time yeah just real quickly i played this game a little bit last month it's a fun little kind of relaxing game you can play in short spurts called played up it's a like a little cooking game where you're like a little guy and you're in a little restaurant and you have to run around and serve people food it's kind of one of those things where they're taking a real thing that in real life is like a job that people hate and then but when you gamify it it's fun and cute if only if only real life had whenever you did something had like a little task bar that came up that was like doop you have completed this. <laughs> That's a really good point. You can find me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz and watch me stream D&D Tuesday evenings, twitch.tv slash nerdhalla. Yeah, no, if only if only real life worked like a video game where you got little, <laughs> every time you did something, you like brush your teeth and like a little thumbs up came up like, good job. Oh, totally. Like, yeah. <laughs> I think maybe that's your billion dollar idea. <laughs> yeah. Get that for the watches and the apps and stuff. Glasses or whatever. You got a power moon. Craig, you so stoked every time he gets a power moon on Mario Odyssey. It's a great game. He like comes to me, dad, dad, I just got a power moon because I bop, 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 Yeah, and I get it. I, yeah. I actually just read after I finished Count of Monte Cristo a novella that I highly, highly recommend although I was mega unsettled by it. Connor, have you ever read H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness? It's the one about the ant. It's like clearly what John Carpenter used as his reference for the thing. These uh, Antarctic explorers discover these creatures in the ice, and then the original camp is decimated. So these two explorers go to see what happened and discover this city that could only have existed 500 million years ago, meaning that they come to the horrific conclusion that it must have been built by alien uh, life forms. It rings a bell but I haven't actually read it but I know the I know the story yeah I mean at this point it's been so absorbed into so many other works of art <laughs> you'd be like I think I've read that I've avoided HP Lovecraft like I actually avoided Texas Chainsaw Massacre because I've always been really worried that he would really bother me it's funny I love horror and there's a lot of things I feel brave about but there's certain things where I'm like I don't know if I can do that I don't know if I can deal with that because I've heard that his his brand of horror is really profoundly unsettling if you get too deep into it <laughs> and like <laughs> I have no desire to, to, you know, be unsettled too much. But I had to do it because Stephen King is so influenced by Lovecraft. It 
is essentially a Lovecraftian horror. John Carpenter, not only The Thing, but literally in the mouth of madness is a reference to At the Mountains of Madness, uh, like an homage, and Traffics and some of the similar themes. Uh, not quite, but some of the similar. But I, I will say that I did read it, and it did unsettle me, but I was able to deal with it. I actually, weirdly, I thought I was going to save it because I'm going through an intense time right now, and I didn't know if I needed to compound intensity with intensity. But I was like, no, nah, I'm going to do it. It felt right. So it was really easy to read, real novella. I mean, I got it done in five hours. So uh, you can you can cruise through it. But it is so inspiring. I can see now influences of it in Alien, Ridley Scott's Alien, actually, and in a lot of uh, sci-fi horror as well. But it's really inspiring because Lovecraft's world building and what he gets at, you're fascinated. But he's always doing this thing, which I thought would get old, but it didn't, where when these explorers discover this city and they decide to go into this 500 million year old city and they suddenly realize the creatures that built this and the horrific, their inability to fully comprehend these creatures. And then they, the creatures have art and the art tells their history, which then tells the history of these battles that happened on Earth 500 million years ago between different alien life forms that we're trying to call on. And they're all like almost beyond our ability to understand what they are. Are they vegetable? Are they animal? Do they have human traits? Do they not? That's his whole thing is like intelligences or life forms beyond our ability to understand what they're about or what they do. And I was studying up on him and I guess his thing was cosmicism, which is the idea that we try to tame the universe a little bit, maybe with our notions of God or our notions of the afterworld so that we can feel comfortable. And his firm belief is that that does not apply. And that if we ever came into contact with alien existences or whatever, they would just not care about us any more than we care about stepping on an ant. And so things would happen to us that would be beyond horror for us. And that the life forms inflicting this on us would not give it a second thought because they'd like almost be unaware of us. And so it does traffic in a kind of horror that's very uncomfortable to be in because you sense there's probably some truth to it. If there are alien life forms out there, Thank you, uh, everybody who was here who will get cut into this podcast. Our next podcast is Secret Movie Club Podcast 126. We're going to talk about the 90s Gamera trilogy. Specifically the first one. Uh, which is a kaiju film about a turtle who uh, saves the world and is a protector of everyone. And he fights against other beasts. And then we're also going to talk about kaiju films. Edwin, as long as he's on the podcast, will school us all. Because I, I do think he's seen almost every single kaiju film ever made. And that is next week. As always, you can find out about what we're doing on secretmovieclub.com write us a community at secretmovieclub.com come tonight for some John Ford we'd love to have you if there's still tickets left we got the posters going on finally this episode was edited by our chief creative content officer Connor Lloyd Cruz thank you Connor and uh, that's it we'll see you next week have a great week love you family This is great, great content. <laughs> Everyone loves waiting.